The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Perrot columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers podcast. We're doing something a bit different today. Rather than focus on a single company, we're going to have a chat to Liam Twigger. Liam will be known to many as Managing Director of PCF Capital, the Perth-based specialist corporate advisor to the resources industry. Founded by Liam in 1999, PCF has offices in all of the world's key mining centres and is one of the resource sector's leading advisors on M&A, project financing, asset sales and acquisitions, general corporate advice and a bunch of other services for clients from junior explorers through to mid-tiers and developers and on to the big end of town. So it's fair to say that PCF has its finger on the pulse of the resources sector and through a quarterly publication called The Resources Thermometer, it's happy to let us, all of us have a, a share of its insights into the uh, sector's performance and what we should be looking out for. To round out the introduction, I'll mention Liam is Chair of the London-listed Solgo Gold and a non-executive director of Gold Corp, which operates the Perth Mint. Uh, Liam is also known to uh, be quite uh, adept dancing around soccer balls in his time. Now, with that, I'm going to say good day to Liam and welcome him to the podcast. Hi, Liam, and thanks for your time today. Oh, good day, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that extended introduction. I sound very impressive. I'm very impressed with myself. Thank you. <laughs> Give yourself a pat on the back. All right. Okay, Liam. Um, now, the uh, 2020, uh, an unusual year, but uh, the back half of 2020 was a, a big year for mining companies, juniors, explorers, and uh, the major end of town alike. What were some of the key figures you've seen emerge from uh, 2020 that would uh, give us a feel for just how big a year it was for the sector? Well, it was a roller coaster ride for many of us 2020. We had our worst year ever in 22 years as at 30th of June um, 2020. And then the last six months has been our best six months in 22 years, how it's changed. Mm. The amount of capital coming into the mining sector has been incredible. And just looking at the stats for last year, 2020 was the biggest year for capital raisings in, into the mining sector on the ASX ever. The biggest year ever. It's it's incredible. It was at nearly eight point eight billion raised, wow. and you know back in two thousand and seven during the commodity super cycle we raised seven point seven billion. So we exceeded that. And then even looking globally, Barry, um, normally the TSX combined uh, TSX and TSXB raise more money than the ASX. But last year, according to SMP, we raised more money than them as well. So it's been an absolute bumper year for capital raisings. And if I may go on, looking at dissecting that, most of that money went into existing producers and developers. We had 24 um, IPOs uh, against 29 globally. And going back to 2007, there were there were 95 IPOs. So um, there's a lot more risk appetite, uh, I think, back in 2007 for the junior sector. This year, I think we're seeing a carry on. And I expect you know, the next three years to be outstanding for the, the junior mining sector and the resources sector in particular. Okay. So uh, let's uh, turn to look at 2021. 20, uh, uh, why don't we break it down a bit into commodity sectors. Uh, first up, gold. A bit of a wobble in the gold price to kick off the new year. Uh, what's your view on the gold price and what companies interest you in the sector at the moment? Uh, I, I, look, it had a good run, but I'm, I'm still very bullish. And I'm, I'm bullish on 
all of the commodities. This pandemic has it's 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 creating a it's a structural and fundamental catalyst for a super cycle in commodities. We all saw how much all commodities ran up during the, the pre-runner to the to the GFC. It was the the Chinese commodities boom, and it was a very good time. But now, and that was really just on the back of synchronized growth just within China. Now, with the, all the world economies stalled, every government pumping money into their economy to stimulate demand. Um, you know, one point nine trillion being spent in the United States on infrastructure. You know, to have that synchronized across the world. All the countries, once we get on the other side of this COVID um, pandemic and the vaccines run through, we're going to have a, a pile of demand for commodities like we've never seen before. I think we're moving into a structural, another super cycle for commodities. And uh, certainly the uh, you know copper and nickel, um, iron ore and uh, gold will have a, a big role to play. So I'm, as you can guess, and I would say that, Barry, but I'm very bullish. And I did, it's not going to be 12 months. I think it's going to be the next three or four years and for Western Australia in particular. No, fantastic to hear. Now, I did say I was going to uh, go through the various commodities, but just uh, intervening for the moment, two things that um, uh, stand out to me and when we talk about super cycles is the, uh, the challenge the industry seems to be facing on the ESG side of things. What's your read on that? Well, it's, it's been something that um, I guess the last 12 months it's really picked up. And if you're trying to raise money, especially in London, um, everyone wants to make sure that uh, you're compliant and where are you with your ESG uh, compliance statements. And the trouble with it, that there's no standards reporting framework. You know, every company has a different way of attacking it. And, and one company that I'm involved with, uh, I think we had 143 pages in our annual report showing communities and lots of happy, smiling faces. But um, mm-hmm. fortunately, a lot of the big investor groups outsource their reviews on ESG to to uh, someone in India or, or another group that's got to trawl through your report to try and pull up and, and see where you're going on your carbon emissions. And I think that's really got to be simplified um, and that, that that's a challenge going forward. But uh, Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, has just come out with his letter to CEOs. Now, BlackRock mm-hmm. is the biggest investor fund in the world and certainly with resources, and they've moved beyond ESG. They're saying, what is your climate change policy and where is right. your pathway to becoming carbon neutral? Um, it might take 10 or 15 or 20 years, but where are you? And that is really, you know, they, they're going to have their foot on the on the hose in terms of access to capital, unless you can show that certainly you've got your ESG under control, but where are you with respect to climate change? So it's gone beyond a debate whether you think climate change is real or otherwise. It's yeah, exactly. uh, where are you with respect to your, car- where are you on the carbon neutral spectrum? And uh, I think it's a good development for the world in, in many respects, but uh, it just shows how quickly the market has moved. I mean, you know, it's probably two, three years ago, you wouldn't have um, paid much attention to it. Now it's an absolute driver for everyone to get their compliance and the governance um, in order to, uh, to attract capital. Mm. Now, uh, am I wrong in thinking that uh, the Australian sector has a, a sort of natural advantage because uh, it does seem to be at the leading edge of ESG and decarbonisation? Um, requirements from investors nowadays? Well, possibly, but I think we're still coal's one of our biggest exports. So, uh, and it's going downstream as well. I mean, you might say, well, look at our iron ore sector, and um, and but we, we we sell the iron ore overseas, and they produce all the pollution up in China. And and now are people looking beyond that. They're looking at what you do. Where does your iron ore go? And this, and the, the people that take on that iron ore, what are they doing with pollution? So there's many roads to go. I don't know whether. Um, 
Australia's at the cutting edge. I think we've made some great inroads, but a lot of juniors don't really worry about it. But in the end, if the access to capital is tied up to having your ESG and your climate change policy in place, that'll drive change, whether you like yeah. it or not. So um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not convinced we're across. We're ahead of the curve, um, but we're on the on the right. Black rock ahead of the curve at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, just talking about other challenges facing the industry, uh, cryptocurrencies, do you uh, see that as a, uh, taking money, uh, particularly speculative dollars, out of the, the resources sector that uh, used to be there? It's an alternative asset class, and I think I said, might have been six months ago, someone said, what's your outlook, what's your best pick of commodities for the next 12 months? And I said Bitcoin, and that was when it was, I think it was just under $20,000. Um, to be a you know, a store of value, I guess you've got to take some of the volatility out. And, you know, we've see, seen it gone to 20,000, up to 40,000, back down to sort of 25,000. So it is still really too volatile to be a medium of exchange or an alternative currency. But I think it's it's, it's growing in, um, in profile. And I think Elon Musk came out and said he'd take Bitcoin in terms of a payment for uh, one of his cars and he's invested one and a half billion in it. So it's another asset class. I think that's what it needs to be seen as. It's counter-cyclical. Um, maybe a competitor to gold. I don't think it's a store of value, and I think gold has, uh, you know, so many other better features. But it's not going away. It's been away around for a long time, and I think it's here to stay. And more people will be comfortable investing in it, especially when you've got zero interest rates. It's not as yeah. opportunity cost is um, is uh, significant. Yeah. Okay. Now, <clears throat> talking about the super cycle, um, iron ore is an interesting space. It's you know the one hundred and sixty dollars US plus a ton prices is super cycle stuff but it really is it seems uh production shortfalls by vale um a lack of investment in the last four or five years in new mines um do you see this iron ore price being sustainable on the back of a super cycle or do you see it weakening once vale gets back up to speed um i, I think it's going to be stronger for longer um, it's so hard to pick. I mean, I mean, Barry, if you imagine everyone in Australia when COVID broke out, and certainly in WA, um, we've gone, what would happen to property prices? Oh, COVID, no, no one has any work. They're working from home. The economy goes into recession, maybe depression. Property prices go down. Well, who would have expected property prices to surge the way they have? So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't know for sure. But right here, right now, I think the outlook for iron ore looks fabulous. And, you know, the likes of BHP and Rio, anyone that's moving towards production, is going to be in a very good position for the next two or three years. So I'm, I'm mm. very bullish. Uh, there's, uh, these prices, uh, sustained high prices, have in fact encouraged a bunch of juniors to uh, think about uh, becoming producers and uh, some of them uh, will be doing just that in coming weeks. Um, given your view on iron ore price, should investors stick with the majors for exposure or is there, or is there upside to be had with some of the uh, junior developers? I think the junior model's got to be a sprint model. You know, you might have 10 million tonnes at, you know, 57%. You can jump on someone's railway, get it to port and get it out. And the capital cost of, of development, it's as long as it's not in the billions, it might be 50 million or 100 million, that makes so much sense. You know, we, we've, um, we looked at uh, recently the, the AAMC deal. Um, they've, uh, you know, before, you know, they had a deal with, with uh, FMG and it's now gone to Minres. But... Um, um, and in fact, Minerals have, have acquired that asset, but that showed a magnificent return for a small outlay of capital. You've got mm. in the hundreds of millions. So I think you know the days of someone coming through said, saying, you know, we need a billion and a half dollars, and we, it's going to be three years or five years to first production. I'd caution about that. But anyone that can get into production within six to twelve months um, with a reasonable sort of capex, 
And as long as that capex got some connection or some relativity to their market cap, so I'm not saying, you know, if you've got a 50 mil market cap and you've got to raise 500 mil, that's going to be a stretch. If you've got a 50 mil market cap and you need 20 or 30, it's eminently doable. So there are a number of those opportunities and people have moved in, into production, um, leveraging off other people's infrastructure and makes a huge amount of sense. And I think that's most of the deals that were coming through. We're seeing people with, you know, 10 or 20 million tonnes and, and getting them into production and getting a return very quickly. They had that sprint capacity is important then. Sprint, yeah, and be able to shut down. So the price might drop. If it drops in 12 or 18 months, you can turn it off and you don't, you know, go bust with a pile of debt. It's, uh, I think, being, you know, nimble and having that sprint capacity. Right. Now, lithium, interesting space. We've had a false storm before. Um, are you a believer? This rebound, this massive rebound we've had since, what, September, October last year. Are you a believer? It's been unbelievable, hasn't it? It's, it's mm. just... Um, you know, to the poor guys in Altura had such a tough time. You know, lithium mines were going bust and um, people were limping along. And then we saw that huge run up in, uh, in market caps before the lithium price moved. And now the lithium price is playing catch up. So now I think the outlook for lithium is terrific. Um, but linked to that, I'm probably more bullish on nickel. <laughs> so, um, mm. uh, you, know, you know, there's plenty of lithium around the world. It's not that rare. Probably nickel might, um, might be something that's a little more unique in our high-grade nickel sulphides in the Cambalda region and around Australia, I think there's more leverage there. Um, lithium, probably the first guys um, that, that get into production, the pilgrims of the world, and then if you can move into downstream processing, that makes a huge amount of sense to add more value to the product. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm nervous of anything that, that uh, where, where there's a lot of it and, you know, the barriers to entry aren't necessarily huge to, you know, to, to create, uh, to produce the spodumene. So I think that you can add value and... and um, create more value that way, that makes a lot of sense. And there's some R&D that uh, will go into that to protect your market. Would you have the same view on graphite then? Uh, yeah, that's that's a thinner market. And that's, mm. that's so you've got lithium where there's, there's, you know, lots, hundreds and millions of tonnes of the stuff. Graphite, um, probably the size of that market is smaller. So you've really got to be special. So I don't know enough about it, but I'm, I'm wary when the market size is small and then someone stubs their toe in the DRC on the world's biggest, highest-grade graphite deposit, and everyone else goes bust. So I'm, I'm just yeah. I'm nervous. I'd rather have at least at least I think that the demand side is bigger. Uh, graphite, someone's probably going to come ring, ring up and kill me. But um, I'm just nervous if, if the whole market size is a bit smaller, um, you run the risk of someone coming up with you know a, a breakthrough or a big deposit of higher grade and making everyone else redundant. Mm. Uh, well, you mentioned nickel there, um, and it again goes to the EV renewable battery storage thematic as the world decarbonises. Copper uh, seems to be being uh, pulled along as well. Um, so, you know, if you have a basket of battery materials and you want to include copper in there, uh, an interesting space. But I was wondering, the do you think the some of the outsized growth people are forecasting in terms of, say, nickel demand, copper demand, is uh, will be a reality? We will see it unfold? Yeah, the, the, there has been a lack of investment. And you can't have, again, if we go back to this synchronised growth across the economies around the world, all spending you know, billions of dollars on their infrastructure. Um, you know, they're called Dr. Copper, for, uh, Copper the doctor, for, for the reason. For a good reason and i just think if you're going to be bullish on worldwide growth you've got to be very bullish on copper there's been limited exploration and new discoveries so that the, the, the supply is constrained and uh, i think the demand is going to be stronger so the outlook for copper i think is superb and nickel um not only being you know, linked to the growth in economies and infrastructure and steel 
but also connected to you know the battery and the EV vehicles and the Western Australian high-grade Cambalda type. I think um, the Blair nickel mine is looking like being spun off and I'm aware of uh, some other floats coming out of the Cambalda nickel belt that will hit the market over the next um, over the next six months. So it's going to be a very good time for, uh, for nickel and, and some new IPOs. Right, okay. Now talking about decarbonisation generally and IP, uh, IPOs in the pipeline as well, uranium uh, seems to be bubbling along even though the price hasn't taken off yet. What's your, do you have uh, much of a feel for the uranium market and what it means for our uranium explorers slash developers? I have sympathy for anyone that's invested in, in uranium. <laughs> I have my deepest sympathy. I mean, it's been a long, long time between drinks, hasn't it? Um, Mm-hmm. And always that, you know, the price is going to move and uh, there's a bunch of scenarios as to why it should have gone higher. And they've hung in there and now it might be their time in the sun. So I'm absolutely delighted. I think there's every argument to suggest a high uranium price going forward and there's a role for uranium. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully its time has come. So all those very patient investors might might get their, uh, you know, their their, uh, their payback. So I, I look at, I'm not an expert in uranium, but I think there's a role for it in, in the market. And that uptick in price um, is good, but uh, I'd have a balanced portfolio. I don't know whether I'd have all my eggs and I th- in, in the uranium basket. I think anyone that's been involved in uranium for the last six or ten years would know that. But um, I think the outlook's pretty good. Mm, okay. A uh, feature of last year and perhaps the uh, last six months of uh, 2019 was a lot of exploration success by the industry, both uh, big and small, you know, Degray, Chalice, Staveley. And then uh, Rio's uh, Winu and BHP's Oak Dam. What's your uh, tip for twenty one? Are we going to see some more big discoveries? Yeah, I think so. It's 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 amazing. I remember at various mining conferences when you're asked to comment on on the exploration sector for years. There were three or four years. I mean, there was hardly an IPO on the Australian market. It was mm. and self analysed and come up with all these reasons why money's gone elsewhere and not into the exploration sector. That the discovery cost is too high. And then, bang, the appetite for risk changes and then there's more money than you can ever poke a stick at. And, yes, it's been on the back of some great discoveries at Chalice and DeGray, and I don't mean to um, undermine those. But, you know, when the market goes risk on, there's a pile of capital coming through and we had 24 IPOs, expiration-type IPOs last year. I think we could have 50 this year. And I think this, with the technology that's been applied now, so a lot of the near-service discoveries have been made, they've got to be smarter with the technology but uh, they are getting smarter with big data, and I'm very bullish. So it's 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 great. It's um I think very exciting, and um but you need to have a have a portfolio approach, and you know most of the times they're going to miss. But um you know the the uh, the exploration market is 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 crucial to the long term success of the mining sector, and uh, it's back in black now. Right, um, with the uh, well the gold price where it is uh, still a great price in Australian dollars, um, and base metals coming up. I'm just wondering what your thoughts on uh, uh, M and A expectations are for 2021, given there'll be a lot of cash sloshing around in some of the sites. Yeah, look, we had a lot of interest from from China probably in the first half of last year, but that got turned off with uh, the change in the FERB rules, and that that smashed so many transactions and. Um, you know, just it was um, in March last year when uh, Frydenberg said that uh, the threshold for foreign investments dropped from 1.2 billion to zero. So if a Chinaman wanted to buy an ice cream cone in Australia, he'd need further approval, and FERB would probably say no. So it was all it was just like one of those massive changes in Polish government policy overnight, and had a huge impact on the market here. 
but you, you close one door, open another. The, the amount of North American interest is uh, is huge. And we've got active mandates from a number of North American players looking to, to expand their footprint in Australia. And it's a vote of confidence, you know, when you have the likes of Saracen and Northern Star coming together um, and, you know, Barrick and Rangold coming together, that's a statement. If the biggest guys are coming together to become more relevant for investors, what does that say for everybody else? So I think there's, there's a lot of merit and there's a lot of quant funds and index funds that will invest in you if you get to a certain threshold. And the arbitrage mm. is huge. And we saw that um, before. And I think you've commented on it, Barry, about, you know, with the likes of Doré and Silver Lake. I think Doré at, at the time it came together had 150 mil market cap and Silver Lake might have been 400 mil. So it was 550 combined. Or in fact, it was 300 and 150. So it was 450 combined. And within three months, it was 1.2 billion. And it's... Mm. Certainly great management at Silver Lake, and there's a lot more upside to come, but now they're up at $1.8 billion. So there's a lot of um, leverage in coming together, getting critical mass, getting onto an index, and getting swept up with the momentum. So I mm. think you know, there's more of that that's going to happen. Mm. Now, you mentioned the portfolio approach to investment in the sector. You would be advising uh, all investors to be taking that approach or... Is it, uh, is it uh, still seen by some as a casino and uh, it's red or black? Ah, well, that's part of the fun. But I, look, we got behind a company called Brightstar um, earlier on uh, this year and late last year. And, you know, there, there are gems there. It had like a one mil market cap um, over the Chinese, 53 million. Um, and we were able to get the Chinese to, to, to accept their debt for, for 10 million, cancelled 400 million shares. So Brightstar went from one mil market cap to 25 mil market cap. They've got uh, um, a plant that's um, um, 300,000 tonne per annum capacity in the gold fields and half a million ounces in resources. And we think there's a huge amount of upside. So there's certainly great opportunities within the sector and where, where you could make still make, you know, five, ten times your money. But um, mm. but you need to have that risk appetite, don't you? You know, it's not like um, you're putting your money in Woolworths. If you're, if you're investing in the mining sector, generally, if you're at the junior sector, you're trying to make ten times your money. So if you're going to make mm. times your money, there's every chance you could lose some. Um, at the bigger end of town, probably at the Northern Star, that you know, you're probably looking to make 20%, 30%. But anything sort of south of that, people are in because they've got that risk appetite and it's not a safe bet. There's a lot of volatility in the market and you've got to be very careful. But um, So hence, you know, the best free kick you can get in corporate finance is to spread your risk. And um, rather than putting all risks in one, one basket, let's have, you know, three to five or 20 and, and get some professional advice. So uh, that's the smartest thing you could do for yourself. All right. Okay, Liam, uh, thanks for that. Uh, good advice there. Lots of great insights too. So with that, I'm going to say uh, all the best for 21 and uh, thanks again for your time today. Cheers. Absolute pleasure, Barry. Thank you for the opportunity. Cheers. Thank you.